Everybody. Welcome to a truly special edition of the George Sanders Show. Uh, Sean and I are on location today at the Pacific Place Theater here in uh, downtown Seattle. Um, we are recording the show here in the lobby because uh, we just found out that the new Johnny Toe movie opens tonight um, and we're going to go watch it in about an hour. So we're scrambling. We're recording the show here in public. Uh, if you hear explosions and stuff, it's because we're sitting right outside Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, so, or if you hear bad 70s rock music or something, it's probably that. One or the other. One or the other. Um, if you hear good 70s rock music. It's probably Bob Dylan. Yeah. Who is the uh, <laughs> person of the week this week, uh, tying in with the Basement Tapes uh, complete that got released, um, bootleg series volume, what, like 11? 11. Hey, there you go. Um, so we're talking about two films this week. Uh you know that Bob was heavily involved in Ronaldo and Clara, which uh, is really really hard to find. Uh, I think only 21 people have seen it on Letterboxd, and you and I are two of them. Like 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 many Dylan things, it is a legendary bootleg. That's right. And also uh, the 2003 film Mask and Anonymous, uh, co-written by Dylan uh, and directed by Larry Charles from Seinfeld and Curb Your Enthusiasm fame. Um, and so we're gonna be listening to a bunch of Dylan. Uh, all day, all night, and uh, picking our Cinema Central concert film uh, as well. So, oh, and we're also we're gonna we're gonna get back to that Johnny Toe thing too. We will give you a uh, post screening uh, review. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna come back and and record a little uh, immediate impression. That's right. Uh, of Don't Go Breaking My Heart too. <laughs> and we we will duet on the song Don't Go Breaking My Heart too. Um, so. I think we should start this. Yeah, let's start with okay. uh, Ronaldo and Clara. Let's do it. If we're going to make a social statement here, then it's not going to have an effect unless it's heard. And we certainly will, you know, it's not going to be heard unless, you know, it gets on the radio. And, you know, you don't get word of mouth. You might get word of mouth, but, you know, you don't have the normal AM problems with. Remember, we once had a problem with one of your other records. <laughs> Seriously impairs your stopping ability, so 
the ALA and us remind you to slow down in rainy weather. If somebody told you Bob Dylan was coming to Providence, you probably wouldn't believe them, but they are. He is. All right, so in 1975, I believe, uh, Bob Dylan went out on tour with a bunch of weirdos, and they toured small venues in the Northeast, and they called it the Rolling Thunder Review. And Joan Baez was there, and Joni Mitchell was there for a little while, and Sam Shepard was there, and Allen Ginsberg, and they would just do a bunch of crazy shit and play awesome music. And it's one of uh, it's one of his best tours. In my opinion, it's it's probably like his his peak live show. Uh, and he captured it on film, sort of, with this movie Ronaldo and Clara, which is four hours long. It contains a lot of concert footage. It contains a lot of backstage footage along the lines of earlier documentaries about Dylan, like Don't Look Back or Eat the Document. And it also, and most controversially, contains a bunch of, of partially scripted or improvised scenes of the various singers and performers acting out these uh, weird scenarios. And that's kind of where the film gets its reputation for, for inscrutability or incomprehensibility. Uh, and is the primary reason why it's out of circulation. You can't really see it anymore is because it's got such a bad reputation. But I loved it. <laughs> but uh, as, as I am wont to do, I, I snuck a peek at Mike's uh, letterboxed rating for Ronaldo and Clara, and I'm hoping he's just trying to fool me because he only gave it a middling three stars. Uh, no, I ain't fooling. Uh, I'm telling the truth. I'm an honest man. Um, and actually, a large part of the reason um, is, is what you touched on at the beginning of this, is uh, for me, um, the 1975 Rolling Thunder era live shows uh, are probably near the bottom of my Bob Dylan what? performance list. Um, I like the concept. I like the, you know, kind of gypsy caravan idea and they, you know, kind of rotate out. But the music, um, to me, is, is really... Um, exaggerated and excessive, uh, and I'm not a I'm not a big fan of that. Um, as evidenced here, there's a. There, you're, you're a fan of the Melvins. Yeah, but the Mel. The, <laughs> if you want me to talk about the Melvins, I'm just to saying exaggerated and excessive. Uh, but the Melvins will play like um, you know one riff for like ten minutes straight and kind of get this hypnotic thing going, whereas the stuff that's going on. Um, on stage in the Rolling Thunder review stuff is, you know, four guitarists play, you know, noodling around and um, Dylan really like, you know, enunciating and making it really, you know, over the top and very theatrical and stuff, which is the point. It's just, I don't care to listen to that stuff as much. Um, and so the music parts in here, there are some great, there's some great music in here. Don't get me wrong. I don't, I didn't hate the music across the board. I, I liked the uh, Kalijah that we opened this um discussion with uh, the Hank Williams cover and um, you know there's some other performances in here um, you know not just Dylan's that I think are good but for me it's a little tedious uh, going through all those songs because I like the you know other versions of those songs better um, you know that being said uh, the the other stuff in the movie I liked quite a bit you know with certain caveats you know that some of the improvised scenes didn't work for me. Some of them worked really, really well, and I wish there was more of them. Um, and some of the performances, like acting performances, I thought were really surprisingly good um, from a lot of non-actors. Um, 
I mean, you do get some, you know, actors in here. Harry Dean Stanton shows up in here, and as you said, Sam Shepard, who has, you know, done acting um, throughout his career as well. Um, you know, but then there are also performances, acting performances that are not so hot. So it's, this, this movie is... It covers. It runs the gamut. It's well, got it's, everything. It's, it's, huge. it's at four hours long. It's it's easily I think the longest movie we've watched. It's longer than Once Upon a Time in America. I think that was the the other longest movie we've seen. Yeah. How long is Touch of Zen? It's like Touch three of Zen's and a half. like three and a half. Yeah. Well, we're doing three. Bollywood next time, so that's yeah. gonna be. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, we're really getting into it, but um, so anyway. So which which should we talk about first? You want to talk about the performances, the backstage stuff, or the. Uh, or the uh, the dramatic skits. Well, you're wearing a tie, so I think yeah. you should decide. I'm I'm dressed down for this <laughs> night out at the movies. Wearing wearing a hoodie, your, my, your, your formal hoodie. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what, let's talk about which aspect of this movie, because like you said, part of it is a tour diary, part of it is a concert film, part of it is an improvised kind of. Well, let's let's start, start talk about the music first, because because you, okay. you already kind of touched on what you didn't like about it, sure. and. Uh, it's it's hard to discuss because those things that you didn't like about it are what I really do like about it. I love uh, the uh, the the sped up rhythm of the songs, the kind of jaunty melodies, the the shambolic multiple guitars. I like uh, you know Mick Ronson. Mick Ronson. Yeah. See, Mick Ronson is my mortal enemy here. He, See, I, I, I love his, like, crazy, uh, I'm just going to do, like, a David Bowie thing in the <laughs> middle of a Bob Dylan concert. Yeah, I was not... And uh, speaking of good performances, he, he has one good acting scene where he's hilarious. He's, his acting is better than his music performance. <laughs> yeah, he plays, like, a, a, a bouncer or a yeah. bodyguard in one scene and uh, refuses to let someone pass, and, and that's pretty good. Is there Ronnie Hawkins who refuses to let pass? You know, watching this, I didn't know who everybody was. I knew who's in it, but I don't know these people by face, you know? Ron, yeah. Ronnie Hawkins is, is one of the many in all of the dramatic skits you get the feeling that all of the men are playing versions of Bob Dylan and all of the women are playing versions of, of Sarah Dylan or Joan Baez right. uh, Ronnie Hawkins is the version of Dylan that is interviewed by the, the woman who doesn't know right. who Bob Dylan is and uh, the first guy through says you'll, you'll, you'll know Bob when you see him he's wearing a hat and then Ronnie Hawkins comes in and is like, I'm, yeah, I'm Bob Dylan. That's right. He's, he's fat and, uh, you know, got this beard and stuff. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that scene, you know, the Mick Ronson scene is great. Um, but there's, what I was going to say earlier about the music performances is there's a scene there in the last hour of this or whatever where the band is kind of given license to just kind of do their own thing with Dylan's off stage or whatever. And, Joan Baez comes in in the middle of it, but they're doing this yeah, like this like this like prog rock, it's like a like guitar jam thing, yeah, and then and then Joan Baez comes out and dances and is hilarious. Joan Baez, we'll get to Joan Baez in a second, but anyway, <laughs> seeing these those, all those musicians kind of unleash like uh, unbridled or whatever, I hate that music. I really can't stand it. So I was like, oh my god. Thank God Joan Baez came out because she saved it. She saved it. And I actually think Joan Baez actually saves this movie. I think Joan Baez is the, is the best thing about she's, Ronaldo she's, and Claire. She's, she's amazing. Terrific. Now, you know, I, I know that you don't like the jam band thing, and this is this is a far cry from what the Grateful Dead are doing. Like, oh, sure. I, I mean, I'm not disputing this that. This is not, you know, 20 minutes of go-nowhere noodling. I, I'm not disputing that. I'm just, I, mean, I, it's, I, it's, I, I can it's, hate multiple things. Sean. Yeah. <laughs> I, no, I'm... It, yeah, but the way you're describing it, it sounds you know very hippie-ish. And well, I, I think it is to a certain extent, but it's more it's more rock and roll than that. It's not really proggy. I, my problem with this is that 
um, the way that the songs are constructed and performed live, they they don't have like distinct personalities separate from each other. They kind of all go together, um, I and they, I don't they care have for a, that. A similar like rhythm, right. To them, like, uh, but uh, and the verses will be kind of mellow and stuff, and then like, and then everybody will kick in. There will be a crazy violin solo during the you know chorus. I, I think stuff. that adds a lot to some of the songs, though. Like, I'm, I much prefer the Rolling Thunder version of A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall to the to the original version or any other live version of it uh i like the the version of one too many mornings that we see in the movie that's i don't think is on the the rolling thunder live album uh i like that better than the the more famous live version from the uh the uh, uh royal albert hall concert uh, I, I I think the Royal Albert Hall concert uh, is uh, unimpeachable. No, don't get me wrong; I, I, I love it. But <laughs> I, I, I I think I think uh, the approach here gives out brings out new nuances in the song that are different than than the Royal Albert Hall one, which is itself different from the album version. Well, like it's, I, it's three distinct songs, all with the same melody and and lyrics. Sure, and and you know. I, I will say that like um, tangled up in blue in here is my, is I prefer the, this version than the version that came out on the album in the same year, um, but coincidentally, the version that's performed here is just Bob Dylan. Uh, it's when it's during his solo set, and, and it's, that's it's my kinda, favorite it's part of the, the movie. It's kind of the climax of the movie. Yeah, and, and it's it's probably the best Dylan song I think that I get in this. But I mean, it's 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 arguably the best Dylan song. No, the best Dylan song and the best song of all time is Desolation Row. I, I have to say. I mean, it's it's arguable. It's in the conversation. It's not. There's no argument. <laughs> uh, but anyway, let's get back to Joan Baez. Because okay. um, I personally, like, I never quite got on board with Joan Baez. I'm not a big fan of her style, her music style. You know, it's, it's a little too pretty and, you know. Um, but she's, she's not here. She gets... She's fantastic. She's funky. She's great. Her performance of Suzanne from Leonard Cohen uh, yeah. comes near the end of this is really good. And but that's more classical Joan Baez. Like that was an actual hit for her. I think she recorded that. Right. I know. I'm just saying that of of the yeah. music in this movie, that was one of my favorite things in it. Um, and then uh, her every time she shows up on screen, she's electric. Like like I can't take my eyes off of her. She's the character she plays is the woman in the white dress, and she. You know, for for certain scenes in the movie, she's wearing this white dress, and my gosh, Joan Baez in that white dress—that's a special effect in and of itself. I mean, I really, I'm, I I really enjoy that. Um, and then other scenes, she plays, at least from my reading of it, she plays multiple characters in this. Um, there's a scene where that's in supposed to be some sort of like bordello or something like that, and she takes on this very exaggerated kind of accent, and um, which is. I wouldn't say she kind of assimilates the role of this of this person, but she's totally watchable and, and it's, great. It's a really fun scene, and 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 Sarah Dillon is also in that scene, and uh, the the two of them have uh, the the interaction with Bob Dylan that I've been I've been waiting like thirty years to see, and and you know you, you know most people know Bob Dylan from from Don't Look Back. We know that that young Bob Dylan, and and uh, he's the uh, you know, always, always got like a, a smart remark. He's sarcastic. He's snide. He's always, you know, testing people and putting one over, and he's never really kind of, you know, exposing any part of himself. Uh, and for the first time, 
on screen, we see people stand up to him and make fun of him to his face, and it's awesome. It's pretty... Well, that scene, which is the, the culmination of the movie, the, the finale of the movie, is the scene with the three of them in a, in a you know cheap, run-down apartment, um, and Baez confronting the two of them. And It's like a love triangle thing that we... Right, we don't yeah. know much of the backstory, but you cannot help but infer the things you know about Bob Dylan and his relationship with Joe right. Biden. And, it, and it's assuming a certain kind of understanding about the, the stories about them, right. not necessarily their actual personal life. Yeah, and which makes Baez in particular um, riveting. And like I think her performance um, is so brave because the character that she has to play in that scene it was throughout the movie, actually, because I want to talk about the Harry Dean Stanton thing in a minute, too. Um, she is not treated very well <laughs> in this movie. Um, and it's it's also brave of Dylan to play a complete jerk. I mean, it you know, I know he's... I think he's working through his own issues but with his relationship between these two women and stuff. Um, but Joan Baez willfully going into something like this that I think has a basis in, you know, reality in, in their own relationship. And, yeah, you there's, know, I mean, there's some basis because we know that, that Dylan and Baez dated and then... And that she liked point, him and, way more than he liked her. And at some point they broke up and he married Sarah, who he was married to for like 10 years. And then shortly after this tour, they got divorced. Right. Yeah, it's very, it's, it's a, it's a, Speaking of tangled, it's it's yeah. a very tangled situation. Um, and earlier in the movie, uh, one of my favorite things about this movie is, and this goes to Dylan's strengths as a filmmaker, is he does this a few times where he will give us the second half of the scene, mm-hmm. you know, and we kind of get dropped in without knowing who's who, what's going on, what's, what's really the plot of this scene, um, and then... Right when we start to get a grasp of the scene, the scene ends, and then maybe like 45 minutes later, it'll pick up at the beginning of that scene, and we'll see what's going on. And there's a there's a scene with Harry Dean Stanton and Joan Baez where they're making out on a couch, which you know if you haven't seen that before, you know you, you haven't lived. Uh, and there's a and then someone comes in and says that uh, Baez was traded for a horse. And you're like, what? And and they makes a big deal about this and stuff, and then they go back to making out. And then, like, an hour later, we see Dylan with Baez going through the snow, and it's a kind of idyllic kind of thing. And then he sells her to Harry Dean Stanton for a horse, um, which is a, really a cruel thing to do, damn it. <laughs> um, it made me really sympathize with Joe Baez. Yeah, and there's, uh, there's all kinds of uh, kind of associative editing throughout the film. Like somebody will be talking about a horse in one scene, and then you'll cut to like Joan Baez riding in a horse-drawn carriage through like Central Park or something. He does that a lot with the songs. Yeah, yeah. you know, Kalijah, the Kalijah scene, will, it actually ends with a, a, a big rig truck with a uh, Indian head on the side of it driving sure. down the freeway. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, you know, it's, it's on the nose, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, and in, in filmmaking style, this is, this is very much... American independent from the 1970s. Like, if you've seen Dennis Hopper's The Last Movie, then you know exactly the aesthetic that, that Dylan is after. Like, he's he's very clearly modeled his film after after that film. And it's also, 
and also the 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 D. A. Panabaker films, the the Don't Look Back. Like I was I was I was shocked at how similar this was to Don't Look Back in just the way that it it alternates the behind the scenes stuff with like the you know there's there's short behind the scenes stuff there's like assembling the stage stuff there's extended dramatic sequences or comic sequences um that are either real or staged and then there's the performance footage and i did not find the movie incomprehensible at all and it has this this daunting reputation as you know like the film version of tarantula and it is not that at all i don't don't think so either i mean i think i follow this fairly you know easily um that doesn't mean it's it's not inscrutable but for me it's tedious at times like i I, I mean i if you're like expecting like a straightforward narrative film then then you're then why are you sitting down to watch uh, why are you watching a a four-hour bob dylan (laughs) (laughs) tour film slash documentary and and you know I, i i do think it's really interesting the the skits that he's created with the various uh with the various figures and I think they all are kind of versions of of him, and it makes it more apparent why why Todd Haynes thought he could make "I'm Not There" in the way that he did because Bob Dylan had already done that 20 years earlier. I'm glad you bring up Todd Haynes because uh, what this what this uh, reinforced for me was um, the casting of David Cross as Allen Ginsberg, and I'm not there. Is the gr- I'm I'm going out and saying it's the greatest casting if, choice of all time. If there was a man born to play another man in a biopic, it is it, David Cross, Cross and as Alan, Alan Ginsberg. Ginsberg. Uh, and Alan Ginsberg here, he's interesting because um, he, you know, as as a lot of people, um, you know, I had a phase, a beat phase, you know, when I was in uh, middle school or early high school or whatever, and um, I you know had my copy of Howl and stuff, and. Um, but then, you know, what Allen Ginsberg did after the 50s when he became kind of this kind of shamanistic guru dude, I was, I was not on board with that. And what's interesting in this movie is that he does some things that um, I really love. Uh, and then he's also totally insufferable uh, the other half of the time. <laughs> uh, he's really, you know, the duality of Allen Ginsberg is on full display in this film. Yeah, and I think I think there's an interesting parallel there with with Dylan's own career because, you know, most of the when people think of Allen Ginsberg, they think of Howell, which was you know, very early on in his career, and he he yeah, worked for another like fifty years mm-hmm. uh, after that. Uh, and similarly with Dylan, whenever whenever you see a movie about Dylan, a documentary about Dylan, it focuses almost exclusively on the period from like 1961 to 1966. Right. And there's very little after that. Like like uh, Martin Scorsese's No Direction Home is like four hours long and ends with the, his motorcycle accident in 1966. And he's had this, this vast career since then, almost 50 years now, that just does not get the, the attention. And... I think that's a real shame because for me, this period of his career in the, in the mid 1970s is one of the most interesting times musically uh, of his career. And uh, you know, it's I think uh, maybe his his late 90s, early 2000s period might be a little better, but. Uh, Desire, Blood on the Tracks, Planet Waves. These are all great albums that, you know, are right up there with, with you know, his first three or four albums. See, I disagree. Um, I, 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 not that I don't like those records. There's some really strong stuff on there. Um, but the, 
I can see why people like Martin Scorsese focus on the early stuff because that is the greatest stuff anybody has ever done ever. Like I'm, I mean, I'm sorry. The string of records from uh, Times They Are a Changing through Blonde on Blonde is it's it's like it's you know when you think about the Beatles and you're like how how did that possibly happen? Um, sure. And and Randy Newman actually um, who is a decent songwriter, not on par with Dylan. Um, you know, he said something and he said, you know, Dylan's lying if he's, if, if he's telling you that he doesn't wish that he could still write songs like he used to. Um, sure. And, and it's true. I mean, like, he doesn't want to write protest songs necessarily, but the stuff that was coming out in during that first five-year stretch or whatever of his recorded career, um, I'm sorry. Well, Dylan, it, Dylan, it, Dylan knows what his best songs are. I mean, there's a reason why he still plays them. You know, he he still tours like right. two. He still plays like two hundred shows a year. Uh, you know, and Master Anonymous, which we'll get to, it ends with blowing in the wind. You know, right. and, and there's a story about blowing in the wind in, in Ronaldo and Clara. Like he 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 is very aware of what he is, you know, best remembered for. But what do you do if you've if you've peaked at twenty five? How do you? What do you do for the rest of your life? And, and oh, I'm not how faulting annoying, him for his right. Life and how annoying him. must it be? To him, for him to just be constantly remembered as that guy that he was when he was 23 years old. Oh, sure. No, and I, you know, like I said, I mean, I'm a Dylan fan. You know, I, he's a, he's a young man here in Ronaldo and Clara. He's like 33 years old. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and now he's, you know, 70. <laughs> um, so actually, he's older than that. He's 74. I think he's 74 this year, right? He's born in 40. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, you know, and, yeah, you know sounds, there's plenty right. of stuff. I mean, you know, all the music we're listening to today on the show um, is post the motorcycle crash. So, and you and I had no problems picking music from, you know, the last 40 yeah, years. Our, our problem was was having too many options. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's there's plenty out there. And I, and I, you know, I love the stuff that came after that. The immediate stuff like uh, Nashville Skyline and stuff. And, you know, some of the... the some base, of the, the basement tapes. Basement tapes, all, you know, all that stuff. So anyway, back to the movie, though. Um, what so so? Well, I I I was circling back to a, a point about this movie, which is, uh, it seems it seems to me that this movie is is kind of the last gasp of this this folk spirit of the the early nineteen sixties. And there's there's an extended interview with uh, his name is David Blue, uh, the guy playing the pinball machine by the pool. That's my. I love that guy. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that might be my favorite scene in the entire movie. And he's uh, he he was there in Greenwich Village in the early '60s, and he's telling these stories, you know, similar stories to what you've heard about, you know, seeing Dylan in the village and, and playing for playing a harmonica for a dollar a night, passing the hat around, you know, all the 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 old you know folk life life stuff that you get in stuff like the Scorsese documentary, um, and you. You know, intercutting that with where these people are 15 years later on the the Rolling Thunder tour, and you you kind of see the beginning and the end of this whole generation, and and this time this 1975 was like the last time that this generation, the style, these these musicians were relevant to the cultural moment because right after this happens, you have you have disco, you have punk, and you have new wave and rap. And hip hop, yeah, uh, all starting within five years 
from of the Rolling Thunder Review. And you know, Dylan continues to make music. John Baez continued to make music. Roger McLean continued to make music. But they haven't been relevant in the way that they were then. Oh, sure. Ever since. Absolutely. So this this to me felt like a a, a sad movie, like a, a lament for like the end of an era kind of thing, and 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 it goes out with a bang. Well, do you? Do you think that was conscious when it was made, or do you think it's just a, an artifact of that because it, you know, documents I th- I think, that I think time? It's, so I think it's. I think there's a, a sense that they are getting middle aged. Yeah, that they are getting old and that they can't really do this. Anymore. Well, there's some talk of like you know the domestic life throughout this. You know, multiple characters say like you know there's one character that doesn't want to go on the road. She just wants to stay at home or stay on the farm. And um, there's a part where yeah, I, think, had, I think that I think that scene is a different point of view. I think the Dylan character is like trying to convince a young girl to go on tour. With oh yeah, him. no, I get what the point of the scene is, but <laughs> um, but then later uh, there's a scene. I think it's even spoken to Dylan where someone's like, "Why don't you go outside?" And he's like, "What's outside?" And he just wants to stay in his stupid apartment, you know, and just right. hang out or whatever. So like you know the encroaching you know. Know, adulthood and uh, just kind of you know and, and going into a lower gear like towards the end of the film uh, uh, I think it's David Blue I'm sorry if it's not <laughs> uh, it says you know in, in talking about Dylan and, and his image he says he's just he's just a normal guy he right, has he's got a, a wife, wife he has kids, kids yeah. he has a house <laughs> he's just a regular guy and there's all this mystique around him which you know Dylan uses as you know the structuring element for his film sure. because he has all different all these different actors, it's like uh, just playing variations on what people have said about him. Like, uh, I love the, the Sam Shepard scene. He has, he has the one scene, and it's like, uh, it's almost like an homage to like Nicholas Ray's The Lusty Men, where he's like, a, his character's name is Rodeo, and he's like a cowboy, and this woman is trying to convince him to stop, uh, stop riding the bulls, and he's like, I gotta do it. Right. And it's like this, you know, manly analog for being a rock and roll star which is just you know kind of hilariously self-inflating oh totally and well speaking of self-inflating what what this movie really uses um like the women come out of this much better than the men do the men are all blinded by their own you know pursuits whatever those are and they're they're very narrow-minded and stuff and the women you know I, th- I think the movie unfortunately at times um just uses women as a reflection of the men um which you know is a little unfair but um uh, but that being said um pretty much across the board the women all seem more well-rounded they they seem um more interesting, more yeah. Whether that's a matter of of kind of uh, self criticism on Dylan's part, as opposed to actually like seeing the women characters as fully rounded human beings. Oh sure, sure. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he doesn't, you know. He doesn't it's strike me as necessarily like misogynist, but he's not what I call like a pro woman. Yeah, I, I agree. At I least mean, not by by our standards. You know, well, fifty years. After. Even some of the songs he plays in this movie are ones that uh, sure. you know are fraught with uh, issues, <laughs> yeah. so to speak. Um, yeah. So yeah, I don't think he's uh, particularly aware of uh, you know. Well, I think I think he's he's I think he's aware of his faults. It's just a, a matter of of whether or not he cares enough to correct them. To a degree, I, I think some of the stuff he's he is unaware of, and I think it's just up there, and he doesn't quite comprehend what's wrong with that. <laughs> uh, I watched this uh, uh, just after watching Eat the Document, which was 
Uh, D.A. Pennebaker's follow-up to Don't Look Back filmed on the next tour, the one where, where Dylan and, and the band uh, went electric to uh, mixed reviews on their tour of England. And, and Eat the Document is uh, an hour-long concert film that has never been released for for unknown reasons. I think uh, uh, Pennebaker like disowned it, and Dylan took it and recut it, and then it was determined that uh, by the distributor that it was not uh, commercially viable viable in the cut that Dylan made. Which, whatever. Did you get a chance to watch it? I did not get a chance to watch it. Yeah, it's it's perfectly legible. Uh, but but in it, you you see Dylan beginning to break down as right. as, uh, as the tour goes along, and he becomes you know. Uh, more and more heavily medicated and his hair gets bigger and bigger and gets more strung out and, and kind of uh, crazy uh, getting into 1966 leading into his uh, motorcycle accident. But uh, it, w- it was very striking watching Ronaldo and Clara after that because A, he looks much healthier than mm-hmm. Ronaldo and Clara and, and B, in those two Penny Baker films, Dylan is the center of every scene and he is constantly talking. He, he, he dominates every room that he's in and he never shuts up. I don't think Bob Dylan, other than singing, utters a line in Ronaldo and Clara until an hour into the film. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I was going to bring that up. Is um, he uh, he's on the screen a lot, but yeah, he doesn't. The, I think the first line of dialogue is is him, him driving a bus, uh, and and he say and he's talking to Sam Shepard, and and he says. Um, Boarding house, sporting house, and yeah. then it cuts, and then it goes to like yeah. another scene. They're like they're like talking about a a, a song. I think they wrote uh, Brownsville Girl together, and then they're talking about a uh, uh, words. Right, and, and you know you, it's like a, a the tiniest glimpse into into Bob Dylan writing a song lyric. Yeah, and he and he. Um, yeah, and then until that, and even in that final scene, the scene of the love triangle kind of playing out. It's, um, it's the women who are reactionary, and, and, you know, the women are, are the ones discussing things. And um, Yeah, in, in the Pennebaker films, Dylan is pathologically verbal. Yeah. Like, he is, he is constantly... And who, who knows how, how much that was the amphetamines, you know? Sure. But, um, yeah. But he is, he, is, he is in the background here. He still dominates every room, and he's a little guy. Yeah, he's little and he's so skinny. Yeah, uh, but but everyone circles around him. Mm-hmm. But here he's he's silent. Yeah, and and we'll see that a lot more in Master Nod. <laughs> yes, we to, will. Uh, <laughs> to uh, perhaps uh, uh, obnoxious degree. <laughs> Well, with that, that's our uh, discussion of Ronaldo and Clara. Um, you know, like we said at the, at the top, it's it's hard to find. Uh, we found it through ones and zeros, as it were. Um, so, you know, it's it's out there. It's out there. It's on the internet, and it's it's Dylan. You can bootleg it. He he doesn't care. He doesn't care. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so, as Guardians of the Galaxy is now getting out in theater number four here at the uh, Pacific Place Theater, we are going to listen to some more Dylan. Um, in honor of throwing away your garbage as you exit the theater. <laughs> That's right. This is off of Nashville Skyline. It's threw it all away. I won't tell her. In my arms She says she would Always 
If you throw it all away All right, so we have leaped forward about two hours in time, and we are going to talk about the news of the week, of which the news is a story that, that Mike here broke. <laughs> Walter He's Cronkite over here. Apparently the, the first film critic in North America to realize, the first white film critic in North America, I should say, to realize that uh, Johnny Toe's new movie was getting a theatrical release in the U.S. today. <laughs> Uh, just stumbled across Google. I, of no. course, immediately tweeted out the information, despite the fact that I was should have been making dinner for my children. <laughs> there, there are priorities in this life, much to their distress. And uh, yeah, I guess, I guess uh, nobody else knew. Yeah, because I, it's it's playing at at AMC theaters and like uh, it's Cineplex in Canada and I think a Regal theater in Boston. But it's like this weird uh, little program that they don't publicize at all, where they play uh, Asian movies, Philippines, Korean, and Chinese. Well, at least they don't, uh, pub- you know, publicize it anywhere that we would know. Like we, because I, I mean, we we were just in a movie theater with like 150 people. Yeah. So um, somebody's finding out about this stuff, but yeah, we're not. But, but no, no film critics. That I know, and I know a lot of film critics on on, on Twitter, right. and none of them knew about it. Uh, local Seattle film critics, nobody knew. Yeah, and you know, you can tell by the audience that was here. We were the only white people there. <laughs> we certainly were, except for two two people that found out be, uh, based by, upon by your Twitter. your Twitter. Yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah, it's very it's very odd. Yeah, so I mean, they're marketing. They're obviously marketing the, the the immigrant population, the Chinese American population, with their with their publicity, and clearly they don't know what they have in a Johnny Toe movie because they should be marketing the regular press because he's a big name. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, uh, you know, in in at least. I mean, I'm a little biased because I'm like the world's biggest Johnny Toby. <laughs> but I think he's a pretty big name in the like the international festival circuit and among film critics, especially on the internet. And and the fact that he would have a nationwide release is playing is playing New York, L.A., Toronto, Vancouver, Boston, San Francisco, and Seattle. Uh, and yes, I actually Googled each one of those <laughs> movie times in all of those cities and a bunch of other cities to find out where it was playing. Because there was no other way to find out, so I don't I don't know what's going on there. And this is this is a recurring thing that we've talked about on the show is is the way that Western distributors and, and exhibitors don't pay any attention to Chinese film. And this is another example of that 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 a release like this would go so completely under the radar. Yeah, it's it's kind of shocking. It really is. I mean, I it makes me wonder how much I've missed, like how much other stuff has played. At this AMC, yeah, one one of the guys who was here with us had uh, I had been talking with him over over the last couple of weeks, and he had actually been to this theater before uh, earlier this year, or maybe it was last year, to see Choi Hark's last movie, uh, Young Detective D and the uh, Rise of the Sea Dragon, 
which I saw on video when it came out right. and is a really awesome movie. And I would have liked to have seen it in the theater, but I had no idea it was playing. Right. So now you got to bookmark AMC's Showtime page. <laughs> yeah, apparently, and they they have they have something coming in 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 two weeks that uh, that I've heard is good. Uh, another Hong Kong movie. Uh, what was it called? Flirt. Uh, what is it? Something about flirting. Something about why yeah. happy flirt. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> We're in the in the hallway of the theater, and the Wi-Fi here is not working, so I can't. We look can't. It up. We can't look it up. We're... But it, it it opens the day after Thanksgiving. There's another Hong Kong movie playing at an AMC theater. So. Yeah. Who knew? So keep your eyes on the skies. Yeah. So we literally just got out. Uh, of Don't Go Breaking My Heart yeah, 2. it ended about 10 minutes it ago. It ended about 10 minutes ago. I used the restroom. Sean stood around awkwardly. Um, and then we moved to this table. So we have not discussed the movie at all uh, between each other. We haven't we haven't said boo uh, about it. Uh, and so we're going to... I mean, we're not going to go into a full epic review here, but... It's it's one of the most Im- impossible things to do is, is talk coherently about a movie... Right after you've seen hey, it. Hey, speak for yourself. I watched yeah. Ronaldo and Clara like uh, ten minutes before I met up with you today. That's so. not true. You were finished <laughs> by like two thirty. Um, so you you are, as you said, you're the self-professed, uh, you know, Johnny Toe Uber yeah, fan. I'm, I'm in the bag for, right. for Mr. Toe. So, uh, and you are a decided fan of uh, the the first film in the, in this. Uh, I, I watched it for the third time just the other night yeah. in, in preparation for this. Uh, uh, so, wh- what is what do you think? I really liked it. <laughs> I, well, I thought it, I thought it was really funny. I think it might actually be better than the first one. I I can unequivocally I can say that absolutely. I think this is a better film than uh, Don't Go Breaking My Heart. Uh, I think this sustains its uh, narrative lo- a lot longer. My, I like Don't Go Breaking My Heart. It's like in my middle of Johnny Toe. I've seen about a dozen now, and that's that's right there in the middle. I, it's it's a great film. It's a, it's very enjoyable, but it it does I think overstay its welcome a little bit with the whole who's she going to pick kind of thing, at, which is a large part of the narrative with that movie. I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the movie, basically. Sure. Um, and it, I well, think we, it, should, we should maybe set up the, the plot a little bit sure. before we get into it. Uh, the, in the first movie, uh, uh, Gao Yangon plays a, a market analyst who is, uh, is being wooed by two men. One is a, an architect who had been an alcoholic but then quit because he fell in love with her and then built her a building. And the other is a, uh, a very rich uh, financier who becomes her boss. A bit um, of a playboy. Yeah, uh, a, a womanizer, a, a man who uh, gets uh, nosebleeds whenever he sees boobs. Don't we all? <laughs> Uh, and then they and then they go back and forth, and she can't really decide, you know, which one she's going to pick. And then at the end of the first one, she picks the architect played by by Daniel Wu, and uh, they're going to get married and live happily ever after. And then as the second film begins, they are still going to get married. Uh, it is sometime later. It's not really sure. It's a year later. Like, is it a year yeah, later? Yeah, there's there's a line in the movie that says. Oh yeah, there's like a title. Year. Yeah. Uh, it's one year later. Uh, Gao Wan is, uh, is now uh, looking for a new job. She uh, gets hired by Miriam Young, who is another uh, financial whiz, like, uh, like uh, uh, the, uh, her first boss, uh, played by Louis Gu. Uh, 
Uh, she's uh, trying on wedding dresses with her younger brother, played by Vic Cho. And then all four of these characters get mixed up. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's it's the like naughtiest romantic. I mean, naughty as in like tying a knot. Uh, yeah. Romantic comedy. Um, you yeah, can think the, of. I mean, Lewis it is. Starts dating Miriam Young, and she starts dating Vic Cho, and she so don't even break it down because it's. It, I mean, part of the fun is trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Yeah, and everyone is confused on who is who. Yeah, it uses the basic romantic them. comedy trope of a misunderstanding and takes it to like the most absurd lengths imaginable um, here. And I think it, it succeeds uh, every step of the way. It, it's it's more fully a screwball than, than Don't Go Break My Heart, as both films are, are, are consciously looking back at, at 1930s, like Ernst Ludwig films, especially not just in, 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 in the comedy and the, the naughtiness of the romantic complications, but also in the, the ultra-rich... Uh, sure. milieu Life's that, that, that yeah. the characters uh, live in that is is totally at odds with any sense of reality. Right. <laughs> yeah, her brother in this one uh, lives on a yacht, you yeah. know, and why not? As know? as young men, do. as young men, you know, young bachelors tend to do, just live on this like huge, you know, hundred foot yacht. Um, yeah. The, the two modes of primary modes of transportation are a white Maserati and a white Ferrari. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, yeah, like I said, I, I think this movie is a better movie overall. I love uh, the way the movie plays with the the first film. Um, it it the, there's a theme in this film about um, uh, reverse. What is the phrase in the film? Reverse. Uh, reverse thinking. Reverse thinking. Thank you. There's an octopus that uh, is is adept at reverse thinking, a clairvoyant octopus. Uh, it always makes the wrong. It choice. always makes the wrong decision, um, and uh, and and the movie itself uses that, you know, not just as a narrative thing, but then it, it, it incorporates that into the way the movie itself is constructed. Because the the characters themselves are always making right, their own right. decisions. Um, sometimes consciously, sometimes not. Right. And it is just, uh, I mean, it's fascinating to see this thing unfurl. And what I think is really interesting about this movie in particular is that um, it uses, you know, the idea of free will is the idea of this movie where who's she going to pick? Who, which guy is she going to go with? But it takes place in a movie that is so densely plotted, uh, that is so narratively you know, constructed into such a complex kind of web that nobody has any choice in this movie because it's all, it's so uh, fictional. You know, this is such a fictional world, you know, there's, there's no bearing on reality whatsoever. And it really makes you think about the idea of storytelling. And uh, I think it's, uh, I think it's great. It, it's, it's top tier, Johnny Toe, in my opinion. I mean, just off initial impressions. But... Yeah, I, mean, I, I think, I think it's interesting the way that it, that it looks back on the, on the previous film. Because, because it's characters... It's like it's like the 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 first film is this is this previous life that they just can't escape from, and they're just they're just caught in it, and they, and they they try and get out of it, and they just become more deeply entangled in these in these uh, in these tropes and the situations that they found themselves in in the beginning, and the more they they try and escape from it, the more complicated the tangle gets. And, 
question. Yeah, I mean, in in the same way that that you know people become obsessed with their past, this film is obsessed with its past, right. which is but, its first movie. But um, I, I've never seen a sequel that that takes that idea, like the the past, the previous movie, and then does such inventive and interesting things with that instead of just like like it, it does certain beats from the, the previous movie but inverts them like it uses you know the, the first movie has this conceit of um, you know using uh, opposing office building windows and doing these kind of cutesy things with it but in this movie every time that that's done in here it's a horrible thing it's, yeah, it, it, it only leads to miscommunication. It, it leads and, to miscommunication it, makes, it leads to depression I mean this is an incredibly cynical and bitter movie Oh, it's 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 so dark, and and yes. and the ending. You know, if if the first film has a fault, it's that it's it's too cute, it's too sweet, right. and it's it's too just unabashedly romantic. Yeah, and this is the complete opposite. It of is that. so it dark. Is, it is, it is the flip side of that of that romanticism. Yeah, and and that's probably why I I prefer it is that it goes to the some really dark places and. Um, and it isn't afraid to do that, you know. Um, and you know, it at the same time, it just it, it it doubles and inverts everything from the first film. Like there's there's more characters, there's more windows, and oh, those yeah. windows uh, reflect much more than they did in the previous one. In the in the, in the first film, the, you know, you can always see see clearly. You can take video. There's like a, you know a, a, an occasional comment, like they can't uh, lamb suet at one point. It's like trying to film uh, a fight, and he can't because of the glare. In 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 this one, the the windows reflect back on themselves all the time, and and there's this this amazing shot at the end where it's like uh, uh, the camera's outside panning across one of the windows, and all you're seeing is the windows opposite right. because it's reflecting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's marvelously constructed, um, and and the fact that it it. Um, it manages to do all of this in such a breezy, kind of breakneck but breezy kind of style, where it's, you you can follow along with all of those kind of uh, you know miscommunications, mishaps, and what have you, um, and you you can follow it. Then that's the sign of like a, a a a good director is that he can take the most complicated stuff and then just lay it out where you're just rolling along with it the, the entire you know way. Yeah, and it's. Uh... You know, maybe it's the difference between seeing it in an audience and seeing it at home. But I've laughed much more during this film than I did during the first one, despite the fact that it's that it's much darker. Well, but I think it's also funny. I think it's, it's I think it's I, high I, points I are also funnier. funny. Uh, yeah, it's 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 wackier. Yeah, uh, there's an insanity to this that's not in the first one. Yeah, and there, you know, the first film is more plausible. Oh sure, this like I said, this is a complete like this, fiction. It's, it's it's a house of cards that that it, it's it's you know it's one of those screwball conceits where if any, everyone had just like sat down and had a conversation right. about what was going on, then then all of the issues could be resolved. But, but who cares? Right. Well, and when I like and and uh, I like the um, the characters that were added to this too, where it it kind of does what I wanted the uh, the the cars sequel to do. Where you've already set up this world, um, and I, w- I it would be nice to just like leave the characters that you know and move on and just in, in bring in new people, and they do that here in such a great way. Yeah, I think I think the the uh, the the Gao character becomes less interesting 
but that's more than made up for by by Miriam Young. Oh yeah, is I, the best performance in the film, and she is just amazing. Uh, she is the star of uh, uh, Pan Ko Chung's Love in a Puff and uh, Love in the Buff, which are uh, terrific romantic comedies uh, from a couple of years ago. Uh, you can see them on Hulu. Would definitely recommend checking it out. But she is terrific here as as Gao's new. I mean, mom. she's like the star. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, she really is, and, and and it's so interesting to make a sequel where the main, like, the focal point of the movie is someone that's not in the first movie. You know, that's really cool. Yeah, and I really like how uh, you know what happens to Louis Gu's character here because he's he's like the the inexplicable character in in the two films because he's a jerk. He's he's no to quote the movie. He's an asshole. He's an asshole. Yeah. He's he's rich. He's arrogant, and he cheats. He lies and cheats, and yeah, all the time. All and the... he you know thinks he can get out of it with like being cute and and you know magic post-it notes, and they keep letting him, and it's so frustrating. But you see, when when we meet him at the you know for the first half of this film at least, he's so pathetic. Oh yeah. And you get, you know, this the sense of a, a guy who's getting into middle age and and is just feeling the emptiness of this, bag of tricks. Yeah, yeah, of this life that he's built of, of being super rich and, and sleeping with beautiful women all the time. What a loser. What well, what, what a loser. Um, no, absolutely. I, and then and then you know, I I don't want to give away the end, but there's Harold Lloyd. <laughs> yes, and there it's is. amazing, and it's the most vertigo-inducing thing I've seen in a movie since uh, uh, Peter Jackson's King Kong. Well, speaking of vertigo, uh, there's actually a vertigoness to this movie too, where um, you know he he recreates his the life from the first movie, as we were talking about earlier, um, in a very Hitchcockian kind of way that is so bleak and depressing. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the way that that pays off when, when that kind of, that story collides with this, the momentum of this film is uh, perfect. I mean, it's really perfect. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's a high wire act from start to finish. And I, I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. <laughs> it's my number one movie of 2014 as of right now. Wow. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. I've only seen, like, you know, 11 movies from 2014. You should see more movies from 2014. There's I'm, good ones. I'm catching up. Alright. <laughs> you know, usually what it is is the first, like, nine months of a year, I'm watching the 2013 movies that haven't been released until now. Sure. You know, so when I'm saying 2014, I mean, like, IMDb. You know what? I know what you mean. Well, I don't go to, I didn't go to the film festival well, and maybe, watch 40 maybe movies. you should do that. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Don't Go Breaking My Heart 2 is in theaters now. Yeah, check your local listings. It's playing <laughs> at uh, at AMC theaters around the country, and and it's great. And uh, yeah, and, and and what was great too was was like you said, seeing this with a crowd, because um, the only other Johnny Toe movie I've seen uh, in the theater was Drug War, which was a, a very different kind of cinema going experience, but it was a great one. Um, where it's very tense and taut and stuff. The, this crowd seemed to know more what they were getting into. Oh yes, clearly. Like this, yeah. this it was it was a very young crowd of of people who would go see a romantic comedy and be totally into it so yeah it was it was awesome well and i saw drug war twice in the theater and the second time i went which was after the festival um you know it was a you know that's like an you know uh procedural police gritty kind of crime movie um and i was expecting you'd get um you know a healthy crowd 
and it was pretty dead, you know? Uh, whereas this, I mean, it's opening night, but we, like I said, we had 150 people in here um, laughing along with the movie, totally caught up in it, having a great time, and uh, it was a wonderful experience. So, yeah, yeah go support uh, Johnny Toe if you can. Um, it'd be great to see this, you know, stick around for a little bit. Yeah, it won't. I know, but it would be great to see, like, if there was, like, a, you know, momentum. So where maybe three years down the line, we'll know that the next yeah. Johnny Toe movie is coming up today. Maybe they'll send out a press release next time yeah, or something. Yeah, maybe they'll do that, yeah. All right, so right now we are going to go back in time to about two and a half hours ago when we talked about our person of the week and our <laughs> essential concert film. So here is that now. Bob Dylan is obviously our person of the week this week, and we're going to talk uh, a little bit right now about um, his kind of cinematic uh, you know, work uh, beyond the two films we're talking about this week. Um, obviously, we've touched a little bit on stuff like Eat the Document and Don't Look Back, um, but you know, Dylan you know, performed in films for uh, like Sam Peckinpah um, and Pat Gary and Billy the Kid, and there was the Todd Haynes film that we were talking about as well, um, I'm Not There, from, uh, what, five, ten years ago now, almost? Or 2006? 2007. 2007. 2007. Yeah. So, um, yeah, what do you think of Bob Dylan as a, an actor? Uh, well, he's not what you would call a good actor. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but, uh, but like we said, you know, he, he has a, a screen presence, and, and how much of that is is due to his rock star right, stardom. Uh, nature and how much it just is to like a, a personal charisma because to look at him he's not the kind of guy you would expect to be the star of a movie yes. he's not a leading man no. he is he's a supporting character <laughs> he's the the goofy little jewish kid that cracks wise in the background right he's the uh he's the vinny <laughs> to the the lead Stoogie Hauser. I was gonna go with Boner on Growing Pains, but sure, sure. Um, <laughs> uh, that being said, yeah, uh, like I think that personified is his uh, his role in Pat Ear and Billy the Kid, where. He, I, I think the story goes is that he was commissioned to do music for the film, and then Peck and Pop met him and said, "Hey, I'm going to throw you in the movie," but then didn't give him a line of dialogue and just, you know. right. Perversely, you have like the most famous uh, uh, song lyricist of his generation, and then you put him in your movie and don't let him talk. Right. <laughs> he kind of sits there with like a, a knife the yeah. whole movie. He looks, he looks enigmatic, and his his character name is Alias. Yeah, which is totally awesome. Yeah. Um, and uh, as a whole, I mean. Uh, I think that movie's great. We ran that as a Metro Classic. It's a really terrific film. Um, it is, is, and it, you know, it doesn't get the love that some other Peck and Paws do. Um, it's much better than The Wild Bunch, I think. Uh, yeah. I really love the end of The Wild Bunch, though. So, I mean, it's good. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a Peck and Paw movie. I'm a big Peck and Paw fan, um, you know, despite the roughness of some of those movies. But yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a good film, and I think uh, Dylan's soundtrack is really cool. That's where Knocking on Heaven's Door came from, uh, which we get two versions of in Ronaldo and Clara. Um, and then, uh, so yeah, so Dylan um, was turned in, you know, the, the biopic was turned on its head with Todd Haynes' film, uh, I'm Not There, which you are an avowed, unabashed fan of. I was I was a huge fan of it in 2007 when it came out. It was my favorite film of that year, ahead of There Will Be Blood and No Country for Old Men. Uh, I would like to give a shout out to Ratatouille. 
uh, ahead of Reddit. Something. It was a great year for film. Uh, Ho Shao Shin's Flight of the Red Balloon, which is now actually my, my number one. Ah, unseated. Uh, I haven't seen I'm Not There in probably five years yeah. or so. And I'm a little... Uh, I'm a little scared to go to back watch, to watch it again <laughs> because I've, I've seen I've seen some more Todd Haynes since then and I'm not impressed. Yeah, I, I watched the first episode of Mildred Pearson was like eh, Cam done or two episodes or something. Um, yeah, I I there's a lot of of that movie I'm not there that I like, um, and there's a lot of it I think it actually still falls in the safe kind of trappings of a biopic. Um, you know. Just because you have different people playing Dylan throughout the movie, um, you know, doesn't mean that your story arc isn't the same rehashed kind of story arc you get in other and, movies. And it is. It, it's 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 that same era. Like it, it ends basically in 1966, and then there's like little bits. You of, get the Dylan of the 80s. I guess. And the, I guess you get. Well, you get the uh, the the Heath Ledger Dylan right. is kind Christian of the Bale. 70s with the the relationship breakdown, and then there's like a little tiny postscript with the Christian Bale. Right. Uh, with the the religious Dylan, but you only get it in you only get like one song and sure. one scene with it. Like it's not taken seriously as like an essential part of of the person. But once again, for me in that movie, and I haven't seen it since I saw it in the theater in two thousand seven. But um, the Kate Blanchett Bob Dylan stuff is the best stuff in the movie. And I don't know if that's because Todd Haynes was more invested in that stuff, or because Kate Blanchett is like the perfect Bob Dylan, or a well, whole mixture she, of all she's of doing things. the "Don't Look Back" Bob Dylan, right. and and that's the most famous material. That's the right. the Dylan that we know the best. Uh, and also, Kate Blanchett is awesome. She's amazing in it. I really love the the Ben Wishaw yeah. Bob Dylan, uh, where he's just at a press conference being interrogated. And you never see like his interrogators, if I remember correctly. It's just like him on a white screen. Uh, I like that a lot. Uh, the Richard Gere stuff is—I forgot he was in that. It's it's <laughs> like the uh, like attempting to capture like the basement tape spirit, where right. like he's gone into hiding and needs to like be drawn back, and it's it's really really trying to be weird. Yeah. Uh, and I love the the kid who plays yeah, like Mar- the, Marcus, the, Marcus Carl Franklin. The Woody Guthrie-esque, uh, you know, yeah. hobo Dylan or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, there's great, there are great elements there, in there's, it. There's good stuff in it, but but I think I think Haynes is really good at capturing the surface of things. Uh, I don't know how effective he is at exploring depths. I, I get that. Well, my favorite part of that movie, and, and the reason that... Um, the reason that I dislike, I, why I think the movie's kind of middling is that uh, the, I think the best performance in the whole movie is Bob Dylan, and he comes at, the final shot of the movie is performance footage of him in the 60s, and he, he doesn't sing a word, it's just a harmonica solo, uh, and his eyes are closed, you don't even see his eyes or anything, and it's the most honest thing in that movie, uh, and it, it, it sends chills down your spine when you watch it. It was, it was that was the best part of that movie, and Todd Haynes had nothing to do with it. <laughs> um, that being said, you know, there's some stuff on that soundtrack. I really like Sonic Youth's version of of the song. I'm not there. Um, Stephen Malcolm's version of uh, "Can't Leave Her Behind." Yeah, Cat which, Powers, which is a song that I don't know that Dylan ever recorded. There's a a brief version of it in "Eat the Document," but. But uh, Malquis's full version is, is fantastic. Yeah, uh, the cat part stuff in there is good too. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a solid soundtrack and it's it's, it's interesting takes and stuff. So um, 
you know, and as good as Sonic's Youth, Sonic's Youth, as good as Sonic Youth's version of I'm Not There is, Dylan's version is better. Oh, well, Dylan's version is, uh, like, that's one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs of all time. Like, what, like, and I had never heard it until that movie came out because that song was an unreleased, you know, it basement was, It's tape, one but, of the basement tapes. Yeah. Um, and that song is the most mysterious, haunting song I've ever heard. I mean, seriously. I mean, it's just amazing. Uh, how yeah. great it is! Um, I just love how how faithful Sonic Youth version is, where Thurston Moore uh, will the way he sings the lines are exactly like Dylan, even though it's kind of apparent Dylan was kind of making it up on the fly as he was going through it, and I um, I think that's really cool. So, um, well, speaking of let like music movies that do not feature Dylan, um, the, our our picks this week for essentials uh, is concert film. So, it, was there one that just jumped out at you, Sean? Was there one that you've seen more than others that that's you know your go-to. Um, what makes a good like do you, do you consider the greatest concert film uh, the greatest because it's a great film or because you like the concert you like the music or is it a mixture of both of those things? I uh, I don't I don't need a concert film to be great filmically in order for me to enjoy it just because I like watching people play music. Yeah, like I I will watch like a, a PBS classical concerts and they're like the most boringly filmed <laughs> things in the world. Yeah, just one like static camera shot. Yeah. Yeah, sure. well, well, no, they'll like cut to like the violin. Oh, okay. It's like violin player and then they'll cut to the, you know, the clarinet. Sure. Oh, it's clarinet. You know, I just, I just like watching people play music. So I, it doesn't need to be, you know, revolutionary yeah. for me to, to enjoy it. Uh, in order to be what I would call a great film, though. I mean, it has to do something interesting. Um, but I, I don't know that I w- want to pick, like, the best concert film because I don't really know what that would be. It's it's so hard for me to, to, to judge. Uh, but I think the most essential concert film is The Last Waltz. So, oh, so Dylan does get Dylan, into it. <laughs> Dylan does get into it. And I tried to think of something else that, that didn't feature him, but... Uh, the 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 only other one I, I could think of would be Woodstock, which I just don't think is as good a film as The Last Waltz, either, either musically or just or just filmically. Uh, although I I really like parts of Woodstock. Um, the Last Waltz is uh, is uh, famously the the last concert of the band, who were Dylan's backing group for about five years, and then they went on to have their own career as, as an act, uh, and they have this big concert and they get. All of their friends. So it was like a, a parade of, of who's who in rock and roll in 1978 comes out on stage and they and they sing songs. And then there's a few uh, songs that recorded elsewhere with like Emmylou Harris. And then cut throughout it, uh, uh, Martin Scorsese is the director. He cuts uh, uh, interviews with with the band members talking about their their early days of formation, just kind of the you know the history of the band and you know. And it's it's standard stuff. It's you see it all the time now, and I don't know that you saw it before sure. the last waltz. I think I think Scorsese did it better than anyone up to that point has done, and I don't know that anyone has surpassed it since. So so that to me makes it essential. Yeah, I I, I can dig that. Um, for me, my pick is. Um it's not a great, I wouldn't call it a great film because it, it, it is just a filmed concert, basically. Um, and even much of the running time is, you don't even need it, to be honest with you. Uh, but 
there's a concert film that, of, of a concert that was done in uh, 1964 called The Tammy Show. Okay. And it was a, it was a smorgasbord of all, of all these acts from the time. You know, Chuck Berry opens the show, you get the Rolling Stones, you get uh, Smokey Robinson's there, um, Jan and Dean, and then you get to James Brown. And James fucking Brown on the Tammy show is the greatest musical performance of all time. I know I've done a lot of hyperbole this week saying something's the greatest of all time, but when I first saw the Tammy show, I was laughing and crying and like falling off the couch with how freaking incredible James Brown's, it's like, he does like three songs and it is James Brown at the James Browniest he can be where he, you know, he, he faints on the stage and the guy brings out the, you know, the towel or whatever, the cape and he gets back up and uh, he does the most insane dance moves and stuff. And uh, Keith Richards, bless his heart, said uh, the only thing he ever regrets in the Rolling Stones career was following James Brown on the Tammy show <laughs> because the Rolling Stones after that performance, they're, they're like, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of a terrible milk toast kind of band. They're like new kids on the block. <laughs> uh, it's that, incredible. That, that's one I, I I have heard about. I have not yet seen it, but uh... it's a, it's amazing. Like I, uh, you know, the rest of it's kind of interesting too. You know, it's interesting to see these other acts and um, the Beach Boys are on there. You know, it's it's pretty interesting for for its time. Um, but it's so amazing to just see somebody come out who's at the top of his game, blowing away everybody. I mean, just annihilating, and James Brown is a saint for that. Um, so if you yeah, if you can check out the Tammy Show, you know you can if you want, you can just watch his clip on on YouTube. But um, it's it's a amazing performance. Yeah, the other the other concert film I was thinking of was was one that we'll be talking about a few episodes down the line. I'm sure it'll it'll come up on our 1984 show. This is Spinal Tap. Yep. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm, I'm speaking, of course, about Stop Making Sense, sure. the, the Talking Heads film, which which I greatly enjoyed. It's a very, very good movie. It's yeah. a very good movie, as is this is Spinal Tap, which will also be mentioned on our 1984 show. And also Purple Rain, which also came out yeah. the same year. So and 1984 was, was... Yeah, 1984 is the best year. a great year for movie <laughs> musicals. <laughs> okay, well, uh, we're going to take another break here uh, and uh, listen gonna, to a little more Dylan. Yeah, we're going to talk about uh, Mastin Anonymous. That's right. Yeah. 
All right, so we are now back in the future again, <laughs> which is about two and a half hours after we last left you. Uh, we're going to talk about Masked Anonymous right now, <laughs> and what we just heard was Bob Dylan and his band singing Dixie. That's right. Uh, do you want to set up uh, Masked sure. Anonymous? Sure, Masked and Anonymous is... Uh... It's an interesting movie. Um, as we said at the top of the show, it was a collaboration between Bob Dylan and Larry Charles, uh, from best known from Seinfeld. He was a writer on that and Curb Your Enthusiasm. Uh, went on to direct Borat. Uh, I think he did like three Sacha Baron Cohen movies in a row. He did that, that and uh, Bruno. Bruno and The Dictator, which I haven't seen that one. Um, Religious, he did that too. Anyway, guy's a comedy a, guy. A, a string of, of genius works of cinema. I mean, I haven't seen all of those, but I mean, they're some of them are fine, okay. you know, whatever. Um, I actually saw um, Bruno. You know, when we had that heat wave in two thousand nine, it was like horrible. No, it was like it was like the worst week of my life ever. I mean, it was horrible. Um, and I spent a nice two hours in an air conditioned movie theater during that time watching Bruno. And I tell you, at that time, I was feeling it. All right. Anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> Onward we plow. So Mastin Anonymous uh, it takes place in a uh, dystopian kind of near future. Um, the United States is uh, kind of war-torn. It's, it's kind of become like a third world country. There's, uh, you know, crime rampant everywhere. Um, a lot of destitution. Uh, cities are in ruin. And... Uh, there's a cast of characters in this thing, but uh, John Goodman uh, is kind of the head of this cast, and he's going to put on a benefit concert. Um, and he's he's total, you know, sleazeball promoter type, and he's going to get this guy Jack Fate to perform. And Jack Fate is, uh, you know, an artist who hasn't done anything in a long time. He's uh, No one's heard from him in, you know, decades and stuff. And turns out Jack Fate is Bob Dylan. He was in prison. Uh, for an unexplained reason, and he comes out to play this benefit concert. The movie leads up to that kind of the concert, but in between there are all of these kind of brief vignettes where characters will come out of seemingly nowhere and then disappear back into the ether. You get Val Kilmer as a uh, animal-loving kind of uh, psychedelic like a, like an animal trainer. Or yeah, um, who who's there literally for like one scene. Um, it's a who's who. Of, it's, a, it's a who's who of weird Hollywood. Of weird Hollywood in 2003. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody's in John Goodman, Val Kilmer, Mickey Rourke, Jessica Lange, Penelope, Penelope Cruz, <laughs> Owen Wilson, Owen Wilson, Luke Wilson. Luke Wilson. Luke Wilson. Uh, Ed Harris. Ed Harris. In Blackface. In blackface. <laughs> so, so... The movie is, is, it's messy. Like Ronaldo and Clara, it's a messy movie. It's intended to be. There's no, you know, it, it didn't, the movie didn't get away from them. The movie was gone from the get-go. It was, it was a, a conscious attempt on, on Charles and, and Dylan's part to create a movie that would play like a, a Bob Dylan song, like Desolate, Des, Desolation, like Desolation Row. Row or something like that. A, a collective of weird vignettes that don't entirely make sense and they have to really think about to puzzle out. Right. Uh, and the movie came and went <laughs> with, uh, you know, there was curiosity, but not much fanfare, not a lot of love. Um, I had not seen it before, but you had, Sean. Right? Yeah, we, we, we saw it in the theater. You and the missus? Me and the missus. 
Were you? Was she the Mrs. Then, or was she still yeah. the? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and she and this is still break the marriage. Okay. No. <laughs> it's actually one of my my proudest accomplishments in life is my wife, uh, when we were dating, hated Bob Dylan, all her life she had hated Bob Dylan, and I convinced her to see the light, and and she learned to love him. That's just like my dad it and was my stuff. Last time I convinced her to like anything. <laughs> yeah, that French cinema didn't go down too no. well. Yeah, no, not so hot. Anyway, um, so you have now watched all of the Dylan movies, right? You've seen Renaldo yeah, like Clara, there's, Eat the Documentary. There's, there's a whole bunch of like random documentaries, but I think all of the like yeah, the, the, ma- main, the major ones where that he, he had... was involved sure. in. Yeah, uh, and. How would you slot Masked and Anonymous in? Would you... I mean, they're all very kind of different movies, although they do share similarities and, and kind of worldviews or whatever. I, I have a hard time saying what I think of Masked and Anonymous. Because, oh, this is going to be interesting. Because I think it's kind of terrible, and it's kind of great. I agree. And I, I don't know how to resolve that, because the things that make it terrible are also the things that make it kind of great. I agree. I agree with that assessment. Um, there are things about the, the, uh, this movie that um, and I, I just rolled my eyes at. I was like, oh my god, really? I'm going to have to... Uh. And, and I don't feel that way at all about Ronaldo and Clara, which, which has the same kind of reputation of being, you know, inscrutable and pretentious and weird for the sake of being weird and not holding together at all. I, I did not... This is the opposite of my reaction to Ronaldo and Clara. Right. Uh, this... I kind of see that. It's a bit ponderous. Yeah. There's, yeah. There's not... There's no real momentum to uh, what's a lot, going on. A lot of it really does play, like, weird Hollywood, just being weird for the sake of being weird. It's like a bunch of guys saying, hey, you want to come make a movie with Bob Dylan? And they go and they show off how, you know, strange they can be as actors, and Dylan stands there... And doesn't say much. <laughs> nods his head and wanders off to go play a song. Right. Uh, and and part of the problem with me in in this movie is like we said, it's a who's who, and so it's like part of watching it is like, oh, Ed Harris just showed up. Oh, you know, like I don't know if this would have been a, a smoother. Jeff, Jeff Bridges was the other. I was going to bring up the fact, yeah, Jeff Bridges. It's it, for Big Lebowski fans. This is a curious movie to watch because it does ultimately end with the dude and Walter uh, beating the hell out of each other. Yeah, and I think I think his character is the worst part of the film, and it's what kind of makes me think that it just doesn't work. Right. So his character is a reporter, uh, and if you were looking for an ambiguous or, you know, a, a fair-handed shake if, on If it. you were wondering if, if Dylan's opinion of the journalism <laughs> profession has improved in the last 40 years... You'll no. be dis- yeah, you'll be disappointed. It is, that is not the case. He's yeah, he's a villain from the get go, um, which is unfortunate because I actually think that Bridges' attempts to try and you know level that out a little bit, uh, despite the material that he's given and stuff. Like I mean, it's Jeff Bridges. You like Jeff Bridges, you know? He's um, he's so maddeningly hostile. Yeah. And it, it doesn't make any sense. Like, his, his first scene with Dylan, he's just interrogating right. him for no apparent reason. Right. And and Dylan's just, like, standing there, like, he's not even looking at him. Like, it's really interesting to, like, you know, 
contrast this reaction to his reactions in Don't Look Back, where he's like arguing with right. the journalists and, and putting them in their place, and you know, and, you know, questioning them right. back. Here, he just refuses to engage at all. Uh, it's really, it's really upsetting. It's really <laughs> disturbing to watch, and it's really unpleasant. Uh, and it, I, you know, I was thinking about this, and uh, in mostly in, in relation to to Don't Look Back, but. You know, because he's clearly not over it, or at least oh, yeah, kind yeah. of a mass anonymous. He's yeah. clearly not over the way he was, you know, he was treated by the media when he, you know, was a young man with his first brush of stardom. And it's so different now, the way the media reacts to, to rock stars and pop stars. And I, I can't imagine anything like his experience happening today. And it's... In, in speak, it's you know in a lot of ways because of what he went through. Like he was such a singular figure when he appeared, that the world didn't know how to react to him. Sure, like the media did not know how to react to him. Time Magazine didn't know how right. to react to him. Right, like is was he a great artist? Was he a rock star? Can the two possibly be the same thing? Right, uh, and you know to have lived through that had to be just infuriating. Oh, sure. Because I think he just wanted to play music and write songs. Yeah, I, I do think I that mean, I think the he beginning wanted to write... it was pretty conscious for what he was trying to do. Was, yeah, well, know. I think he wanted to be a star. Right. Like, and, you know, you think about rock stars who don't want to be stars, but obviously they want to be stars. Somebody like Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain totally wanted who, to be a rock who star. Who made an image out of not wanting to be a rock star and wrote it to superstardom. Right. And then felt terrible about right. it. Uh, you see the same kind of thing with, with Dylan. And I get the, I get the impression from, from this film and, and, you know, from a lot of other things that Dylan thinks that people would have been happier if he had died in the motorcycle crash. Oh, yeah, I think so. so and, yeah, I mean, well, that's a better story. And than, I think know. that, yeah, and I think that makes him really misanthropic with good reason. Right. Because I think that his generation kind of wishes he had disappeared then. Right. Because then, then his catalog is unimpeachable. Then, you know, he, he is the, the martyr for right. the 60s. Jimi Hendrix, yeah. Janis Joplin. Jim Morrison, yeah. Bob Dylan, yeah. you can, you know, contain him. Yeah. He was this thing from that time. And his Instead you know, of being continual a presence and, and change and growth and, you know, the different phases of his career are a challenge to his fans. Sure. Absolutely. I completely agree with that. However, in the world of this movie, that's muddled at best. Yeah, and I think I think there's a, a central conflict in in this movie that that runs throughout a lot of his work, and it's it's with uh, the material that Dylan likes and the social context with which it came from, which it came, uh, and I really started thinking about this in the uh, in the Ed Harris blackface scene. Where, where Dylan is, you know, has, for most of his career, has been resurrecting the music and the musical styles of people from the late 19th century, the early 20th sure. century, uh, from, you know, uh, sharecropping blues musicians. He's been appropriating this, this music and making it his own and making it something else without any really real regard to the lives of the actual people 
who sang it. And I think he's really ambivalent about this. Like, I think he, he, he loves the music and doesn't really address the social conditions from which the music arose, which is why I wanted to play Dixie for this, like uh, his band's cover of that, to, to take the theme song for the Confederate, uh, the Confederate States and to just play it like it's any other song. Right. Is, on the one hand, you know, socially tone deaf, politically incorrect, but also musically fascinating because it's just on its own a really good song. Yeah. So I, I, there's this, this tension here between, between music for its own sake and, you know, and politics, the politics of music and, and what these things symbolize that Dylan's been at war with since the 1960s. Right. Since he did not want to be a political folk singer. Right. He just wanted to be... A, a singer in folk styles. Right. Yeah, I mean, he's he's become post-politic, and, uh, but he still has the same influence. Like, he's, if you ever listen to the Theme Time Radio Hour, Bob Dylan still has the same musical tastes that he did in 1961. You know what I mean? Like, uh, sure, he'd, he'd throw in, like, uh, you know, an interesting curio every once in a while that you wouldn't expect, but... For the most part, he's working within the same kind of sandbox. Uh, yeah. I mean, he's he's a man of his generation. Sure. Like he didn't get into to hip hop, right? Or punk or disco, right? Or sure, anything like that. Yeah. Um, and 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 which is fine. That's totally great. But yeah, I think I think you're right. I think he, in some respects, uh, as a writer or as a an artist, he 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 moved forward um, in terms of like what message he wanted to get across or if he didn't want to get a message across at all but then he's still drawing from the same well uh, that he was you know when he was socially relevant and all of those things and that that does make for an interesting um, duality there yeah and that's it's like if there is a plot to Master Anonymous it's 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 this political message it's just it's it's this apocalyptic fascist world and he just wants to step outside of it, and he's not able to. Like he keeps trying. He want there are these, you know, these beautiful moments of, of pure music that he just can't fully remove himself to. Uh, there's a there's a scene where a little girl comes up and, and starts singing uh, to Dylan, starts singing uh, the times they are changing, and. We don't even get to listen to her whole song because yeah, he, he it, 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 in the middle of it he starts you know randomly musing and we hear his his thoughts and voiceover like we 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 can't even get like that one pure moment yeah yeah it, that's that's a good way of summing up this movie is that there there are very few pure moments here um, even it, even the benefit concert gets gets cut off. Oh after, yeah! After one song, yeah, yeah, was it's cold irons bound, right? Yeah, you don't, they did. Yeah, yeah, and you, yeah, you don't, like the the trope of building to this kind of uh, show, the the kind of uh, Mickey Rooney let's put on a show kind of thing is is completely uh, kind of abandoned by the end of this movie, where it's like it's the the movie's building to this moment. Every character, for the most part, is talking about this show that's going to happen and then the show happens and then so, and then then it stops and so you don't even get the kind of closure which is fine uh, 
but it doesn't doesn't it doesn't work in my opinion. No, I mean it, it. It's fine. I think I think the the ending is really sour uh, yeah. with Jeff the, Bridges the and and John Goodman and Penelope Cruz. I, it's just it's really unpleasant and it's not. It comes out of nowhere too. Yeah, it really does. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's like overwhelmingly kind of dickish. Yeah, but the you know on the whole like I I. You know, as as the needle is going across uh, Mike's, uh, you know, preference or whatever, I, you know, it does it does land in the uh, good column. Like I, I do think there's enough here that's interesting. Like I think this the music is is really great, and it's it's like I said, it's a more stripped down stuff. I particularly like the songs where he and his band are playing uh, the more acoustic. Sound where yeah, they do they, a couple of songs they do like that. Dixie, Diamond Joe, uh, Down in the Flood. Yeah, uh, I, I really enjoy that stuff. I, I actually think, uh, and this, you know, might be Larry Charles or, or I'm not sure. It could be Dylan. Uh, he's a funny guy too. But uh, there are some laugh out loud moments in this movie. Uh, more towards the beginning. Yeah. Um, there are some there are some really funny lines, and I, I you know I, of course I can't think of them right now off the top of my head. But um, there are some genuinely hysterical kind of moments in this movie before it kind of gets bogged down in all of its, you know, other... Jokes. In its, its weightiness. <laughs> yeah. There's, a, there's this, this long scene with uh, Giovanni Ribisi giving uh, this monologue to to Dylan, and they're sitting in the back of the bus, and Dylan is just sitting there kind of rocking back and forth, listening... And Rubisi's talking about about the civil war. This this country's going through the civil war. The first he was on one side, and then he was on the other side, and then he was on the other side, and, and all of the sides are terrible. And it's like uh, the the Bob Dylan manifesto on why he doesn't give a shit about politics is because everyone is the worst. Right. And and then Rubisi gets shot. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's really it's it's not artful. Well, it's the Giovanni Ribisi moment in the movie, and yeah. I, I'm just gonna go go out there and say it. I don't like that guy. Um, I, I anytime he's in a movie, uh, at least in the last like 20 years, I think, I think he performs the scene fine. I know, but I mean, but, it's a it's a Giovanni Ribisi performance, so it's like overly fidgety and, and self conscious. But right, I mean, yeah, I'm just saying that uh, of of the the actors I recognize in this movie, he's the one I like. The least in in, in in normal regular movies, sure. and then that scene was thusly my least favorite moment in the movie. Not necessarily because of him; it just happened to be that's the case, you know. Um, so, you know, it's not Penelope Cruz wearing a Metallica T-shirt. No, and and uh, she was fine. She has nothing to do. Nothing. Like talk about yeah. marginalized women. Like she's she's Jeff Bridges' girlfriend, and she does nothing but fidget nervously in the background. Yeah, there's and, no point to her character being yeah. there. And and Jessica Lange's character doesn't fare much better. She's just the the, the, the boozy woman who tries to boss John Goodman around. Yeah. It's yeah, it's it's, it's bleak. It's prickly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to say nothing of, of uh, Angela Bassett, the the woman right. who gets no lines 
Right, but as far as I know, yeah, and uh, no, she does. She she gets the scene later, yeah, with, when, when yeah in the present day. But yeah, the earlier scenes, she she's just uh, yeah, and that and that whole plot line with Dylan's father is, is the, the, the fascist <laughs> dictator of America, and he had been kicked out of the house because Dylan slept with the father's mistress to try and get the father to stop sleeping with her. Yep, and it's a wacky movie. Yeah, it's kind of dumb. <laughs> But you're like, oh, Oedipal issues. I'm like, nah. Yeah. That's just silly. Yeah. Yeah. But, it, you know, when it, but when it's silly for being silly, then it works, you know. But when it tries to when it tries to do something more than just be silly, then, yeah, then it does not work. I, I really like, uh, you know, the, the soundtrack Dylan himself singing. I like the, the covers on the on the soundtrack as well. There's like a there's like a, a Chinese hip hop version of like a Rolling Stone and there's you know a bunch of colors in different languages and uh it's good stuff. The soundtrack is much better than the movie. <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Uh yeah there's some decent stuff. It, it's interesting because there there are scenes that kind of mirror each other. Like it, Dylan seems to like to put himself on screen um with other people's covers of himself. Like, there's a thing in Ronaldo and Clara, he's walking down the street in the snow, or it's like, it's cold out or something, and somebody's covering one of his songs. I can't remember who it is at this point, but uh, same thing happens with the Chinese hip-hop version. Of it. Yeah, it's a Chinese, I, I don't remember if it's Chinese it's or French. Not. Japanese. I think it might be Japanese. <laughs> I don't know. Um, if I had internet, I would look it up. We're winging But it we're in folks. a hallway here at, at an AMC, so... <laughs> So anyway, uh, yeah, so that's our discussion of Mastin Anonymous. Uh, we're going to listen to some more Dylan here. We're going to take a, a little break. Uh, and I don't remember what we're going to talk about. What, I mean, I don't know what song we're going to listen to. Blind Willie McTell. We're going to uh, listen to Blind Willie McTell from Disc 3 of uh, the, the Bootleg Series Volume 1 through 3. It is the best song that Bob Dylan wrote between 1975 and 1997. <laughs> And he didn't bother to put it on the record. Yeah, he's like, ah, whatever. (laughs) See them big plantations burning. Hear the cracking of the winds. Smell that sweet magnolia blooming. See the ghost I can hear them tribes moaning Hear that undertaker's bell Like a squire Bootleg whiskey in his hand There's a chain gang on the highway I can hear them rebels yell And I know no one can sing the blues Like blind Tell. 
All right, so <laughs> it, it, time has gone all wibbly wobbly on us right now, ladies yeah. and gentlemen. We're, we're actually recording this end part uh, in the middle of the show because we're about to go in to watch the movie that we've actually already now reviewed earlier in the show, but we haven't seen it yet. It's all timey wimey, but it makes sense. Yeah, we're back out. We're <laughs> back out here at uh, seven twelve p.m. Yes. And we're going to record the end of the show, and then we're going to go back later and record the middle of the show, and then our discussion of Masked and Anonymous, which I'm sure was very trenchant and insightful. I'm sure it was, for the first time ever on The George Sanders Show. Uh, next week on the show, we're going to be back in, uh, in the, uh, the comfort of our own respective homes, recording via the internet again. And we're going to be talking about Bollywood movies. That's right. And I'm pretty sure we're not going to be hanging out outside of a theater playing a Bollywood You never know, because Johnny Toe movies come out all the time. So we may be back here at AMC very, very soon. This is possible. (laughs) Anyway, we're going to watch... uh, from 1951, Awara, directed by Raj Kapoor and starring Nargis. Awesome. Which I understand is a very great film. And along with that, we're going to watch 1975's Cholet, starring Amita Bakchan, which is also supposed to be really good. We don't know anything about these movies. Nope. We don't know anything about Bollywood. Nope, we don't know a damn thing. So, <laughs> so like, we can't wait for you to listen to that one. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure we'll have lots of great things to say. Uh, if you are in uh, Brooklyn, uh, playing at the Light Industry is a, a really cool double feature of Peter Watkins' 1964 documentary The War Game and Humphrey Jennings' World War II propaganda film Listen to Britain. Uh, Listen to Britain, of course, made during World War II to kind of psych people up during the uh, during the Blitz. And the War Game is uh, Watkins' kind of speculative documentary about what would happen to the average British family in the event of nuclear war. That's highly realistic and terrifying as hell. So it should make a great <laughs> night at the movies. Speaking of a great night in the movies, this one is also pretty intense. Uh, Sunday, November 23rd at the Castro Theater in San Francisco, uh, you're getting the double feature of uh, Orson Welles' Citizen Kane uh, with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood, which is two movies uh, about kind of uh, maniacal, megalomaniacal men uh, and should be a hell of a time. And seeing both of those on the big screen, again, would be really, really cool. So um, you can find us online at the George Sanders show.blondspot.com we're on twitter at geosandershow um, and you can email us at the georgesandershow at gmail.com uh, 
we need to get into the theater now because uh, it is really filling up there. We're seeing a lot of people streaming in, so we're going to try and get some good seats. But uh, I can't wait to find out what I think about this movie. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure we're going to hate it. <laughs> All right, so right now is uh, one of my favorite songs off of one of my favorite Bob Dylan albums, uh, 2001's Love and Theft. This is Floater, Too Much to Ask. They said times are hard. If you don't believe it, you can follow your news. It doesn't bother me, times are hard everywhere. We'll just have to see how it goes. My old man, he's like some feudal lord. Got more lives than a cat. I never seen him quarrel with my mother even once things come alive or they fall flat. You can smell the pine wood burning. You can hear the school ring. Gotta get up near the teachers you can if you wanna learn anything. Romeo, he said to Juliet, you got a poor complexion It doesn't give you appearance of every youthful touch Juliet said back to Romeo Why don't you just shove off if it bothers you so much They all got out of here any way they could Cold rain can give you the shivers They went down the Ohio, the Cumberland, the Tennessee All the rest of them rebel rivers Never try to interfere with me or cross my path again You do so at the peril of your life I'm not quite as cool or forgiving as I sound I've seen a heartache and strife My grandfather was a duck trapper He could do it with just dragnets and ropes My grandmother could sew new dresses out of old cloth I don't know if they had any dreams or hopes I had it once though, I suppose To go along with all the ring dancing Christmas carols on all the Christmas eves I left all my dreams and hopes Buried under tobacco leaves Not always easy kicking someone out Gotta wait a while, it can be an unpleasant task Sometimes somebody wants you to give something up And tears or not, it's too much to ask 